Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 123 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. So nice to be with you here today, Chris, here at a distance, the new here. The new here, exactly. <laughs> um, I have to ask you, not that I'm going to ask you this every episode, but how did week one of school go? Oh, my gosh, it went really well. My head is completely swirling. You know, it's always hard to start a new project. You know, I think with age comes the wisdom of knowing it's all going to eventually even out and I'll get into a groove. But yeah, the first week was really good. I have one class that meets on Zoom weekly and then the other two are asynchronous. Which one of those, though, has four sessions we're going to meet. So it's going to be nice to see some people actually kind of live and talking as opposed to reading discussions. I'm learning a lot already. And from the other side of the quote desk, I guess you could say. Good. I'm so glad. I've been thinking about you a lot. I know when I started back, I, I felt like I had to dust my brain off a little bit and just get back into the groove of what it meant to be doing all of that. Yeah, exactly. And like even um, there was seven online lectures I had to watch and short quizzes after each that weren't I mean, they're graded for your own information. And probably just so the professor could tell that you actually watched it, <laughs> or right. engaging with the material at some level. But there are two questions that I completely misread. So I got the question wrong. And I was like, how did I get that wrong? And she's like, Oh, because I misread the question. So it's that kind of paying attention that my brain is getting used to again. Right, right. Well, congratulations. One, one week under your belt. Thank you. <laughs> I could tell everybody a quick history thing that I thought was really fascinating. Sure. About the development of the card catalog. So this one class I'm taking, it's about uh, the organization of information. It talks about the histories of how libraries first started organizing and keeping track of their materials. It wasn't until the French Revolution, really, that card catalogs, as we know them, you know, the little index card size pieces of paper, how the card of the card catalog started was during the French Revolution. So after, you know, the monarchy was dethroned and the new government was trying to get their feet on the ground, they, of course, needed money. So they confiscated libraries all over the country, church libraries and the libraries of aristocrats. And they were going to sell the books for money to generate revenue. And what they did was they had people go out and write on playing cards. So at this time, playing cards, the backs didn't have designs. So they were perfect small little things to write on. And so they wrote on the author, the title, the year of publication, and maybe any other little details. So they did that to try and kind of see what they had. And none of this ever really worked out for them. <laughs> um, but the, the card idea really stuck and eventually morphed into what we know as the card catalog, which really didn't take off in the United States until the early 20th century. Because Dewey, who started his Dewey Decimal System, also sold the card catalogs, the physical card catalogs. The wooden card yeah. catalogs, you mean? The wooden yeah. card wow. catalogs, yeah. Well, see, we've heard from several listeners about how excited they are that you're going back to school and that they're going to live vicariously. So maybe we need to just start a new segment, you know, the learning corner, what Chris learned last week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Oh, gosh, thanks for asking. 
Sure. And in the thank you category, we have a new Patreon, Joan. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yeah, thank you, Joan. So exciting. We really appreciate it. We do. Thank you so much. I thought I would start today with a poem. This is a poem by Khadija Queen from her collection called Anodyne. The name of the poem is Of All the Things I Love. Of All the Things I Love. My son wants to leave, depression making talk of permanent exit a habit. I make him laugh, a temporary stay, spend every penny I have to keep him in the comfort and joy of computer games and good eating, his idea. Anyway, fried and meaty and overdosing on pancakes and golden Oreos and steamed chocolate with whole milk. I don't drink much, but I want to. Since last summer, the Woodford only halved. Why can't I be myself in this world? Over and over, he asks me, knowing I'm powerless everywhere except home, regardless of what I say. I would move the fucking universe for you, I say, as many times as I have to, and we both know how fragile my body is compared to my mind. My energy never stopped fueling too. He likes to humor me. He knows better and has the scars to prove it, but he believes I will try, having never seen me give up, without a fight that ended in the wreck of someone else, even if it cost me, too. Sunlight debilitates him, and night keeps him angry awake. How do I tell him that I'm tired? Wow. Uh, This book, I was reading it at four in the morning because I couldn't sleep, and I just gasped when I read that poem. Uh, You know, she's just saying a lot with it. And it reminded me, uh, there's been times on past episodes, Chris, where you've talked about you're doing all this reading over the course of a couple of weeks and there've been themes that you noticed in your reading. And I had that this week, this past couple of weeks. And this poem really struck that theme and the chord kind of of motherhood. And I'm not sure if she's a single mother, but, you know, certainly trying to keep her child who's struggling afloat. And the line when she says, my energy never stopped fueling too. Ah, just took my breath away. It's a great line. And I heard about this collection from our buddy Jana. And during the pandemic, she subscribed to a poetry book club through Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle. And they send one. Yeah, they send a book every other month. And the book subscription is called sub and then in parentheses text. Cool. Subtext poetry subscription. So I'll put that in the show notes, everyone. That could be a fun one. And I should say that this collection um, is out from Tin House Books, and it published in August of 2020. Again, it was called Anodyne, the author Khadija Queen. Nice. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. Yeah, it was it, it packed a punch that one. So what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading a couple things. I feel like I'm reading a couple things and nothing. <laughs> you know that feeling. <laughs> yes, Because I'm reading I do. some really thick textbooks and a lot of articles. But for my pleasure reading, I did actually have to put the shipping news on hold. Annie Prue, I didn't have to, but I did. Um, our book club got canceled. We're going to reschedule it. So I put it kind of beside f- because of that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I want it to be fresh when we talk about it. 
you know, also that first week of school kind of obliterated a lot of my plans of life in general, because things just take longer than you think they will when you're just starting out to do something new. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. I picked back up um, a book that I've talked about before and that Russell and I both talked about on our top 20, 20 reads. It's a book of short stories called The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. Mm -hmm. It was one of Russell's top 10. I was listening to it and I kept having to rewind it and rewind it because her turns of phrase are amazing. And she also, she just shocks kind of, you know, like you think the story is going in one direction and then it goes in another. So I decided I just needed to get the hard copy and I happened to be in the Guilford Library the other day, and there it was. So I picked it up. I've been enjoying it. It's, it is a set of short stories and a novella. Just to remind people, this is the author that Roxane Gay said is the finest short story writer working today. So um, I don't know if I could say that for sure, but I do think it's a really well-written set of stories. The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. Well, I'm also reading... Little Comfort by Edwin Hill. Hill is one of the authors that our buddy, our mystery man, John Valeri, recommended. I think it was what, just episode 122, right? Our last episode, yeah. wasn't John? Yeah. Okay. And it's really off to a good start. Again, this is the series where the main character is a research librarian in Boston, and she's recently just taken a sabbatical because she's suddenly the caretaker of a young child, a toddler. It's her boyfriend's sister, who's her best friend, just took off and left the kid with them. And she has a, the friend has a history of just taking off. So they're not too concerned about her. But suddenly, you know, here they are with this toddler, people who never planned on having children. And she is now, she's turning her talents towards finding people, which is something she's done in the past, because, you know, as a research librarian, you know how to research. And so it's off to a good start. I look forward to, to digging into that more. And then I'm also reading a collection of Mary Oliver's poems called Dreamwork, which is a 1986 collection. It has the poem that you've read in the past, I think, Emily, The Journey. Yes. Isn't that one that you've read yeah. in the past? I was happy to see that that poem was in that collection. It's the first time I think I'm reading a poetry collection on my Kindle. It's different. Yeah, I was going to say that because poets do, they, how do I say it? The white space can be so important in poetry. And so sometimes when you read it as an ebook, you lose some of the way that they set the poem up. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I wonder if you're experiencing any, any of that with this book. You know, I I don't think I am. I mean, the thing is, it's comfortable because it's backlit and I could read it in bed at night. Mm -hmm. I have the font as big as I need it to be. <laughs> so my focus is really on the words and I don't feel like I'm missing anything, especially, you know, after a few nights of doing it. What I appreciate is just how it helps calm my brain as I'm trying to fall asleep because every you know it just feels like my head has exploded recently so yeah, yeah reading some poems that are so steeped in observation and nature there's just something really comforting about that yeah I have two books of hers on the nightstand 
And I agree with you. Sometimes it's like you just can't dig into fiction or your nonfiction that you're reading is too heavy. And just to be a little contemplative with her, I feel like is a gift. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. So what have you just read? Turning my page. I just finished a book called My Grandmother's Braid by Alina Bronsky. This uh, book was sent to us by Europa. Europa has these beautiful little covers. It's a book originally written in German, translated by Tim Moore. The author, Alina Bronsky, was born in Russia, and she lives in Germany now. And the book is about a couple, an older couple, who move from Russia to Germany, hoping to find a better life. And it's, I think it's either I can't remember, I'm sorry, if it's right before the fall of the wall or after the fall of the wall, probably after is my guess. But I don't remember that part. Sorry. Um, It's told from the perspective of Max, who's a young child, and he lives with his grandparents and his mother, their daughter has died, and we don't know why. And they've been since they're refugees, they move into this residential home. And the grandmother is like, she's bitter, and she's angry, and she's judgmental. She's anti Semitic, she's homophobic. She, I believe, I mean, this is me self diagnosing, (laughs) it wasn't covered in the book. But I believe she has Munchausen syndrome, you know, which is where you take your anxieties and all of that, and you put it on the child and you think that they're sick. Mm. And um, so she treats Max as if he's got all these stomach problems and illnesses and can't eat anything and can't do anything and is weak and feeble, none of which turns out to be true. It really was an unpleasant book to read, because she was so unpleasant. And it's sold as like a satirical, witty book. I didn't really find the humor. Like there was some, there were some witty lines. Alina Brodsky is very good at dialogue. So there's a lot of interesting dialogue in the book, but I didn't enjoy it. But it's very small and you kind of want to see what's going to happen. And her husband ends up having an affair with someone and they have another child. And it ends up being kind of a poignant book because the the grandmother, Max's grandmother, becomes involved in that child's life, but still you don't like her. <laughs> so it was a very complicated book to read. Again, poignant deals with family, family secrets, like we don't know what happened to his mother. Max doesn't know what happened to his mother. Interesting characters, but this grandmother who kind of takes the forefront was a very unpleasant and it wasn't in like an unreliable narrator type of unpleasant. I mean, she's not the narrator a and B she wasn't unreliable. She just wasn't very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you think it was though? So who was kind of like the narrator whose perspective was it told by and were they, was it their understanding of the grandmother or their attitude towards the grandmother? Do you think? I'm sorry. I forgot to tell that very important. Yeah. It's narrated by Max the little okay. boy. Yeah. So it's all from his perspective, right? Yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. Because so often you get stories about grandmothers being warm and fuzzy and the right. place to, to bl- the place to be the person to go to when mom or dad are being jerks. 
Right, exactly. The safety. And she definitely wasn't. I mean, she was his world in a lot of ways, but not a very pleasant. And and I think that's part of, you know, it's hard as a parent and a grandparent. I mean, she becomes his parent, right? To not put all of your own shit onto these little beings, you know, and all your worries and all your fears. And she had things to be worried and fearful about, but you still need to let him live his life, right? So it's not a book that I don't recommend. I mean, I recommend it. She's a good writer. But I think it was definitely not like the witty satirical romp (laughs) that you might think it's going to be. Unless I just missed something. I don't know, maybe. And then I was also like, well, that's kind of hard. It's a book in translation, right? So maybe Mm -hmm. some things just didn't translate the way they should have, you know. Yeah, you never know, right? Maybe German and Russian humor is a little different than humor here. I would think so. (laughs) (laughs) So again, it was called My Grandmother's Braid by Alina Bronsky. Very cool. Well, it's always great to read women in translation, I think, you know, because it does give you different perspective and takes and and just supporting women writers in translation since we don't have very many of those books translated into English. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, I didn't finish a book since the last time we talked, but I do think I am going to, uh, I don't want to say DNF, uh, you know, so the shipping news, I'm considering that to just be temporarily on hold, but the only good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, I'm really thinking it's going to be on hold for a very long time. (laughs) Man, this book, I like his writing a lot. His writing is very vivid and present you feel like you're there with the character it's the story of this group of men who made a poor hunting decision they're native american men and they they were abusive in their hunting let's just put it that way in a variety of ways and it's 10 years later now and this one elk a teenage female elk that the first character of the story killed he thinks has come back to haunt him Oh, wow. And it's really good. And it's slightly creepy. And it's, it's bloody. And at the end of his story, which was at about the 40% mark, that's when I just thought, I just can't do this anymore. And this might be a little bit of a spoiler. Let me just tell you what it was that kind of tipped me over was, so the man's a hunter, he grew up hunting, and he knows how to clean an elk, a deer. And there are two dead women. He doesn't uh, dress them down, but he cracks their jaws open to get at their trophy teeth. And it's just the way he does it. It's like they're just deer or elk. And I don't mean to say just deer or elk. They're sentient beings. I don't mean to sound dismissive. It was just that image of a man doing that to women. I Mm -hmm. I just couldn't. I just, you know, I was just like, yeah, no, I'm kind of done. Because it's not imagery that I want to have in my mind. (laughs) I was just going to say that. I think we have to be very careful to control what we put into our heads and our psyche, you know? Yeah. And when, when it goes in, you know, maybe in the summertime, I might pick it up again. We'll see. I have it on my e-reader, so it's not going anywhere. It's not taking up space other than in my mind right now. And, you know, the thing is, though, it's listed as horror, And so it's not like this book is unexpected. And it's not gratuitous. That's the thing, too, because it is 
all in line with the story and this mm-hmm. character, even though some things are shocking. Yeah. So, you know, I'm confused by it. I'm attracted to it and repelled. And that's why I can't really say I'm going to DNF it. I, I do think it's just going to be on hold for a while. And we'll see because I do like his writing. And it's mysterious. Like, you don't really know what's going on. Like, is he being haunted? Is he just going crazy? What's going on? You know, and then now these other, I think there are different sections of the book and different sections focus on the different characters. So it might get uh, less gruesome. It might get more. My thinking was just knowing from past horror novels that I've read, if you're at the 40% mark and something is really like, oh my God, I can't handle that. You know, it's just going to get ramped up. Right. It's not going to get better. It's yeah. high, high creep value on that one. Yeah, it like, like it's not yeah. going to turn into a cupcake novel. Right. No, uh-uh. no, no. They might eat cupcakes while they're, you know, washing their bloody hands. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, you know, I do recommend I do recommend it. Like if you if you like horror, it's it's really wonderful writing. And again, that was the only good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Wow, it reminds me like when I saw the Silence of the Lambs movie, I never read the book, but the Silence of the Lambs movie, I was like, this is just so creepy in a real way that I just can't like, I don't want to think about what is happening in my neighbor's basement. You know, Mm -hmm. it just and I after that, I was very careful about the movies I watch. And the same thing with books. I mean, you know, you're you're creating the images as you read. So creepy, right? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, and I really think sometimes what goes on in your own head is worse than, you know, sometimes what you could see on a TV screen. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll see listeners if we hear again about that one. You won't be hearing about it from me. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I finished the Islanders by Meg Mitchell Moore. This is the book that I talked about as an upcoming read on the last episode, um, kind of as my desire to have a beach read in the middle of winter. It's been really cold and snowy here. And I started this book and then I read, I put it down to read the other, my grandmother's braid, and then I picked it back up and it takes place on Block Island, which is a place I've never been. It's out in the middle of Long Island Sound, kind of past the, like really in the middle you know, kind of ocean, oceany. And um, I really want to go. It's supposed to be a beautiful ferry ride. I've never been there, but it's really a character in this book, which was fun. And the author says in the acknowledgments that she, you know, someone from the historical society there gave her a good tour of the island and really helped her to understand its history and how things are laid out and all of that. So you'd think that you're really there having a visit as you read it. Oh, cool. And it's told from multiple points of view. Um, There's a single mom that owns a bakery where she makes these, you know, homemade whoopie pies, which are like cake, you know, filled with different delicious cream fillings. There's a mother who's there visiting and she's a stay at home mom and her husband leaves the island every day to go work as a surgeon in a hospital. And she unbeknownst to him and the rest of his family is becoming a very well known blogger, food blogger, but she's blogging as a dad instead of a mom, (laughs) which I wondered how you'd feel about that, Chris, as a blogger. And it seems like it's kind of the books taking place in the early days of blogging as well. And she's doing really well and has a bunch of affiliate sponsors and is making a bunch of money. But 
Her husband thinks she's staying at home with the kids and is ready to have a third baby, which she's not. So there's a little tension there. And then another character is a is a man who's come to the island to escape because he was an author who had published a very revered book and his sophomore effort, just as it was about to publish, it was noted that there was some plagiarism in the book. Oops. So he falls off his pedestal and comes to Block Island to hide. And his father is a famous writer in his own right. And then uh, the woman who owns the bakery, her daughter is also a character. And so there's also kind of a coming of age aspect to the novel as well. It frustrated me, this book, because so much of it was about mothers working, single mothers, and then the married mother who, you know, wants to, she had been a lawyer and quit her job to raise the children. And now she wants to work and she's kind of hiding it from her family. And it just made me kind of angry. And it's Mm. partly because this is a theme that you're hearing about right now. Like, a statistic just came out that in December of 2020, Women accounted for all of the job losses, 156,000 jobs lost by women in the United States. And it's because they bear the brunt of child rearing. That's a lot of it. I mean, that's not all of it. A lot of it is because they're also, you know, they have service jobs, a lot of them, and those jobs are disappearing because of the pandemic. But men gained 16,000 jobs over December, right? Yeah, there's also that wage disparity, too. Mm -hmm. So even if a man and a woman have the same job and happen to be living together and one of them needs to drop off, it's going to be the woman. Most of the time, yeah. And the Times just came out with a really good piece on, you know, what's what's happening for women and working women, especially during the pandemic, working mothers, I should say, during the pandemic. So, you know, To be fair to the book, all of that was going on in my head as I was reading it. I mean, I thought it was a fun book to read. I definitely felt like I was having a visit to the water, which was lovely, you know, in summertime. But it also just kind of dredged up some of those feelings for me and made me angry that, you know, we seem to be women seem to bear some burdens and also have to explain it to men, like the character having to kind of come out to her husband as you know, like, I don't want to be a stay at home mom, I want to have this fulfilling job. You know, the the book dealt with that. But I just felt like, why do we have to keep having these conversations? Right. Um, So anyway, and then the single mom, you know, who's had married someone young and had this child, and then he went off to live his life, you know, in air quotes, while she raises their child. That's a frustration to me also. So I'm getting very off task about what the book was actually about. But actually, I'm not. But I'm telling you that, you know, I had my as we always talk about you come to a book at a time in your life, and can bring other things into your reading of it. Someone else might pick this book up and just think, oh, it was a fun little romp of a book to read. Right? Yeah, exactly. So much of what's going on in your own life totally impacts how you read Right. Yeah. Not just what you read, you know? Yes. Yeah. And in my own life, you know, on the personal side, you know, I was, was and am a single mom and worked hard and still work hard and raised my children while always working. You know, even when I did, quote, stay home with my kids, I ran a daycare. And so I've always been a working mom. And, you know, it impacts 
your livelihood and the way that you can approach the world. And so I think I really felt that as I was reading this book. But I did, she's a good writer. And it was an interesting book. And I thought it was interesting how she wove all of these different stories together. Again, the book is called The Islanders by Meg Mitchell Moore. Wow, that does sound like it would bring up a lot of issues. I mean, just to relationship issues and relationship inequalities and how honest are people in their relationships with their significant other about what they want. Yeah, that's and, a good and point that too. people change, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you can't predict how a child is going to change your life. Right. And you certainly can't predict like, you know, I know that idea of someone's going to stay home with the kids, and you can't predict how it's going to feel to leave your job and stay home with your kids. Sometimes it's wonderful and fantastic. And it's great for the whole family. And sometimes, you know, the wrong person chooses to stay home, or neither of you want to stay home, and you want to get someone to help you take care of your children, which is fine as well, or you can't afford for someone to one of you to stay home. It's a complex series of things you have to handle. And it's a long way to raise children from start to finish. Right. It never ends. No. (laughs) My mom's 82 and I still call her with, you know, mom. Right. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm independent and everything, but, you know, emotionally, she's still one of my supports. So right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Which is lovely. Biblio adventures. Yeah, I did several. Me too. You want me to go first or you want to go first? Why don't you go first? Oh, you're so sweet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I got to um, attend a book event at a bookstore I'd never heard of, Boswell Book Company in Milwaukee. And this was with the author Lauren Fox in conversation with J. Courtney Sullivan. Lauren Fox's book, I talked about it um, a few weeks ago, it was called Send for Me. And it's the book that she wrote that she had originally kind of tried to write it as a memoir and then realized it wasn't working that way. When her grandparents died, she found a set of letters that had been written from parents to their child um, in the United States from Germany. And it was at the cusp of the World War Two. Lauren realized that she really needed to write a work of fiction around this. And she did. And the book is out. Again, it's called Send for Me. And J. Courtney Sullivan is also an author who I love. And I recently read her book Friends and Strangers. She has other books, but that's her most recent. And some of the topics that they covered were inherited trauma, which we've talked about recently. And she was asking Lauren, like, did you know any of this about your grandparents, that there was this history where, you know, they had left family behind during the war. And, and she said she didn't know about it. But there was always this sense in her family that you should stay home, and stay safe and stay close to each other. And kind of like they were always prepared for bad things to happen. And I thought that was really interesting. Jay Courtney Sullivan also asked Lauren if what was happening on the borders um, in our country affected the writing of this book for her. And she said that it definitely did. And also the rising anti-Semitism in our country really gave her pause and made her think about the subject matter of this book. I asked her because there was a bakery in the book, I asked, I of course, had to ask her, you know, did your family run a bakery in Germany? 
And she said they didn't, but they ran a butcher shop and that she's been a vegan for years. And she just felt like I couldn't do it. I didn't want to spend time writing about, you know, a butcher shop. So I changed it to a bakery. And then I asked a follow up question. Well, can you bake? Are you a good baker? And she said, no, absolutely not. (laughs) She's not a good baker at all. But her grandmother, um, who the story, you know, is loosely based on was and she has memories of going to their house and just smelling these delicious German pastries, which she started prattling off the names of Chris, which I thought, you know, you've probably had the opportunity to eat in Germany. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a really great event. And I just wanted to remind people that that book, Send For Me, is out now. So I highly recommend it. What about you? Well, I took a drive. I needed to see snow. I missed snow before our three snowstorms that we've had in the last nine or 10 days. Um, So I took a drive up to Amherst because I figured they had a little bit of snow. And I wanted to visit Emily Dickinson's grave which I had never done before. I've been to her house a couple times. So I struck out to go on a drive, see snow, and pay my respects to Emily Dickinson. It was kind of a challenge to find the location because where Google Maps or whatever I was using took me was into this parking lot with all of these little retail storefronts. And I was like, "What? where am I going? So I I went out onto the road and then I saw the cemetery. So there's no like street parking where you can see the cemetery. So I went back to that retail parking lot and then walked into the, I think it's the West Cemetery. It's a pretty old cemetery by U.S. standards. And since it had just snowed the night before, it was super easy to find Emily Dickinson's gravesite because I just followed the footprints. (laughs) there were you could tell there had been people walking with their dogs but there was already quite a few uh, well at least maybe three or four footprints of people that I followed to Emily Dickinson's grave I just kept going where there were the most footprints and it went right there and then I walked around the cemetery it's a rather small cemetery but beautiful and you know the bleak winter cemetery scape is just I think lovely But then I saw this huge wall of color right next to the cemetery, abutting the cemetery, is what was the Amherst Carriage Shops. And it's a long building, you know, one story, I think, long building, long brick building, where a mural had been painted depicting a lot of the movers and shakers in Amherst throughout history. And it's just so colorful and lovely. I was drawn to it and spent some time standing in front of it. And, you know, Emily Dickinson is, of course, there. And a lot of other writers that people may or may not be familiar with. There's a a brochure that we can put in the show notes for that, which I think, you know, some people might be interested in checking out. It, It features writers, farmers, philosophers, people who you know, made advances in technology. It's a little bit of everybody from Amherst. So that was just a really fun thing to experience. And I look forward to going up in warmer weather with my fellow cougar, because I think um, you'd enjoy that too. And it'd be nice to go visit Emily Dickinson's house again. Yeah, I would love to do that. Because I remember when we got there, there wasn't much time left before it closed. And we did a a really quick tour of it. So I would love to go back there. And then we didn't get to the Amherst bookshop either, which is just down the street. So I'd like to do that whole trip. 
that's a cool bookstore. I yeah. I, I, my my first visit up there, I was able to stop in. They have a great use section downstairs, like just this huge wall of literature. It's fantastic. Mm. Ooh. So after I was walking around the cemetery, it was you know the sun was starting to go down, and I thought, well, before I hit the road, before it gets dark, I'm gonna go visit the closest library because I love to just check out the local library. They are closed up in Massachusetts. There are three public libraries in Amherst, and the closest one to the West Cemetery in you know historic downtown Amherst is the Jones Library, which is this fantastic building that was built, I think it was in the 20s. I wrote a blog post about it and took a lot of pictures because it had really different architectural elements that I really delighted in. And then when I got home and I was researching the library, I looked at Google Maps and from the top, there's this huge dome on the inside that you can't see from outside on the ground. So that was a neat architectural detail. And there were some pictures you could see, you know, people reading underneath that big glass ceiling um, with all that wonderful natural light. But there's also a Robert Frost connection with that library. Robert Frost is from Amherst and the Jones Library, the main librarian at that time was the first collector of his poetry. They have a plaque out front because it is a literary landmark because of the association with Robert Frost. Yeah, your blog post was really wonderful in that. And we'll link to that in the show notes because the pictures are so cool. You did a great job. I mean, I was like, I can't believe it wasn't open. I almost felt like I got to see inside because of the way you took pictures. Yeah, I did. I poked and I took a couple pictures from outside inside. Right. I say we can add that to our Biblio adventure when we get a chance to go. I'd love to go and work under that dome in the light. Absolutely. And the Amherst Historical Society is right next door. So oh, cool. it would be fun to visit yeah. them too when, when they're open again. So I had a question about the grave. Now, I know um, it was winter and there was snow on the ground, but did did you see any offerings that people had left? You know, like pens or... Oh, yeah. There are know. things on top of the stone. It's a yeah. tall headstone. And her sister's right next to her. There's actually a little fenced-in area with the Dickens members in there. And what's interesting is that the headstone faces the fence. So it's like a wrought iron fence. And it's just like inches away from the headstone. So, I mean, if you're into taking photographs, you can't really get a clean shot. I'm not sure if after her fame grew, they put the fence up. I would imagine, yeah. But then it's interesting, too, because like, most of the cemeteries I'm familiar with, the headstone, you have the headstone facing and then the body right below the facing of the mm-hmm. headstone. So did they have a different convention there? Because, you know, it seems like you have the headstone facing away from where the body is hmm. or the coffin, I should say. Right. I don't know. You know, because otherwise the fence is right on top of where her coffin would be. Right. Anyway. Yeah, that's a little bit of a sidetrack. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, people did leave offerings. There were rocks and an orange and pens and foreign coins and neat things. Mm. Yep. Yeah, cool. I um, got to attend an event through Murder by the Book with El Cosimano, the author of Finley Donovan is Killing It, in conversation with Megan Miranda, the author of The Last House Guest. 
And this was recorded. So um, you can watch it on video. I will put a link in the show notes. It was a really good event. I've talked a couple times about that book, Finley Donovan is killing it and how much I love it. And some good news is El Casimono said she has been um, contracted to write the second book in the series. So Finley's going to be a protagonist that we see again, which I'm really excited about. She also um, talked a lot about how hard it is to be funny in a mystery thriller, which I hadn't really thought about that, you know, as a writer. And she did a really good job of it, I think. Um, It was a fun event because she, Ella and Miranda are friends. And I think I talked about how one of the key scenes in the book is how she's at this Panera talking to her agent about scenes from her book and people sitting next to her think, you know, she's a contracted killer. Well, um, Megan Miranda is El Casimono's friend. And they actually did hatch the idea for this book at a Panera, a group of her of Elle and her author friends. So it was kind of fun to see them in conversation talking about it. And the one thing that blew my mind in this event is probably me just being really late to the party. But they were talking about writers that influenced them. And they were talking about S.E. Hinton, and they, you know, who wrote The Outsiders. And they said she and I was Mm -hmm. like, what? I always thought Essie Hinton was a man. You knew. Yeah, I well, I didn't when I was a teenager reading her. I found that out later. But you know, it's one of those examples of, you know, you can't have a woman writing about gangs and things like that back then. So yeah, initials. Yeah. So funny. I was like, that just blew my mind. Yeah. Isn't that something? <laughs> I'm hoping things are changing and that teenage boys would pick up a book written by a woman. Well, I mean, I think J.K. Rowling changed a lot of that where, you know, she had crossover in both um, girls and boys reading the Harry Potter series. Yeah. But again, know. initials, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, I see what you're Joanne. saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, like the yeah, initials yeah. hide. Yeah. Yeah, people's gender sure. so yeah almost every time i see a book with just initials on it i assume it's yeah. a woman mm-hmm. yeah 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 that's true yeah, yeah. it's well, hopefully it, sometimes it's it happens the other way mm-hmm. then i always think it's just because that name their name is already a popular name like the author is john smith or something and they think well i better do something different Yeah, I knew a guy named Joe Conrath who writes mysteries and horror, and he did the initial thing because he wanted people to think he was a woman mystery writer. Because his he wrote the Jack Daniels series, and it was Jacqueline who was the main character, and so he wanted people to think it was coming from a woman writer. Mm -hmm. Because you know, women writers, women mystery writers are hot. I you know. Like Lisa Scottlini was big mm-hmm. then in her mystery series. I know she writes more kind of like mainstream women's fiction now. Mm-hmm. But that's a, that was a good series. Her early law firm series, Lisa Scottlini, I thought did a good job of being humorous, you know, getting back to your initial, the challenge of writing a funny mystery thriller. She's someone I'd like to read. Maybe I'll try that series because you know how I feel about lawyers. That would be fun. Yeah, Yeah. it was really good. Um, Everywhere That Mary Went, I think, is the first book in that series. There are four women lawyers, and each of the early books focuses on a different character. Oh, cool. Which is neat. And they're set in Philadelphia. 
You might like them. Yeah, yeah, would. I'll check them out. Yeah. Did you have any other adventures? You said something about a show that you watched. Yeah, I am into a couch biblio adventure for sure. Um, it's and I might be a little bit late to the party on this. I, well, I guess the series just started November twenty nineteen, but it's Dickinson, and it's listed as a comedy created by Elena Smith, and it's about Emily Dickinson. I think it's a brilliant show, I have to say. It takes Emily Dickinson, like some of her biography for poetry, and it's set in 19th century Amherst. So you have like the historical houses and decoration and clothing, but the language is contemporary to us. The attitudes are contemporary to us. So is the music. So you have like these great scenes with 19th century people wearing 19th century clothing and hip hop music or a rap, you know, I just really like that mashup, yeah. mashup or smash up. But it's really cool because like the first episode, what they do is like they take they focus on one of her poems, and they kind of build the episode around that poem. And showing her life in the challenges of a woman in the 19th century, especially a woman who's a genius and a writer. And they show how her poem came to be. And so you see her creative process, which I think is fascinating. And I should say, I mean, one of the things that hooked me was they started with one of my favorite poems of her, uh, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. Mm. He Kindly Stopped for Me. And that episode, if you only watch one, it's on Apple TV, actually. Um, if you only watch one episode, definitely start with that first one, because I thought it was really exciting what they did with it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to trying it. You told me about it, and I, I really want it. But then I was surprised to see that it was a comedy. Yeah, I mean, it has some funny moments, you know, especially like the dry statements that somebody makes in a contemporary attitude about something that was a 19th century norm. Mm, yeah. I won't give any examples because I think it's fun to see them unfold. But read her poem, Because I Could Not Stop for Death, before you watch the episode, because I think that'll help you appreciate it and experience more joy watching it, to have that poem under your belt. Well, Chris just issued me an upcoming biblio adventure homework <laughs> assignment <laughs> yeah totally recommend it like if you're into women writers biopics again the creative process or 19th century american history i think it would be a really good show for people to to give a try great i'm gonna check it out i had one other also a couch biblio adventure i guess they all are but actually this this actually was probably truthfully a driving biblio adventure because it's a podcast it's the Terrible Thanks for Asking podcast hosted by Nora McInerney. She's the she's written several books now, but she wrote the memoir, It's Okay to Laugh. Her podcast has really changed and morphed. She lost her husband at a very young age, which is, you know, the early days of her memoir were all about loss and people who had had, you know, suffered from um, a death close to them. But now she's really changed and um, she started a new series that's all about care. And I'm kind of using air quotes, like how we care for people in our society. And she interviewed Eve Rodsky, who's the author of Fair Play, which is a book. It kind of speaks to what I was talking about earlier about 
what's troubling me these days about women's work and raising children and couples. And she was was and is married, the mother of three. And she's a lawyer who has a law degree from Harvard. She was doing well in her career. And one day she's driving down the road trying to spin a lot of plates. And her husband, I think he texted her because he was making his morning smoothie. And he was like, I'm surprised that you forgot to buy blueberries. And it was for her like the straw that broke the camel's back. And this podcast episode was so good because she is Eve Rodsky is no nonsense. This book came out in 2019. So I'm completely late to the party on it. I highly recommend you listen to it and just hear what they have to say. You know, it's speaking a lot to this idea of women carry the burden for invisible work and emotional work. And this idea, this phrase that was actually coined back in 1989 of the second shift, like women work and raise the kids and all of that. And then they have these extra duties that they typically end up doing. And there's a lot of reasons that are given to that, like, well, women are good multitaskers and, you know, men make more money and, you know, things like that, but that that needs to change. And one of the things that Nora McInerney talks about is that she and her husband, who have three children, were facing some of these very same issues. And he is the stay at home dad, and how that has changed her life and her career, and how society reacts to his position there and the things that they say to him. Because it's not just a, you know, a, an individual couple issue, it's a societal issue and how we also value stay at home parents, whether they're men or women. So they uncovered a lot, unearthed a lot, talked about a lot of things. And Eve Rodsky, what she ended up doing after the blueberry incident was created a spreadsheet. And she started to really look at and started to query people about their work and what they did in their family. And she created a spreadsheet with 98 tabs. And that was the genesis of this book, Fair Play. So again, it's the Terrible Thanks for Asking podcast. And um, it was just, I think, like the February 2nd episode. So really recent. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Very cool. I'm going to check that one out. Thank you for sharing that. I did have another Couch Biblio adventure of a film adaptation. And this was um, Enola Holmes, which is, uh, I think it was on Netflix. It's a movie. And it's about the sister of Sherlock Holmes who is a young woman, she's, she turned 16. So she was raised by her single mom, her dad died when she was really young. And her mom raised her and this is, you know, late 19th century, to be a really strong feminist, a really strong, independent, knowledgeable woman. So she is kind of a wild child in some ways. She turns 16, and her mom disappears. And her mom is played by Helen Bonham Carter, who has done a lot of great historical movies. And so the two brothers come to take charge of their sister, who they haven't seen. So it's Sherlock and, oh my gosh, I, the, bro the other brother's name, I'm flaking on that. So she is going to be sent to a finishing school, which would be like, you know, death. <laughs> Moorcroft, is that the 
the older brother. So the older brother, is that Moorcroft? I don't remember. Um, he's the one who's technically in charge of her and is insisting that she go to this finishing school. And she wants to find her mother. And that's where everything sets off. Now, this is just one movie, but it was based on a the first book in a series that was written by Nancy Springer. She wrote several books. The first was The Case of the Missing Marquis, which is kind of the storyline, I think, of this first movie. And there are one, two, three, four, looks like five or six other books in the series by Nancy Springer. They were young adult novels from Penguin, young readers, published between 2006 and 2010. I really recommend the movie. It was a lot of fun. And again, it had that, you know, similar to the Dickinson uh, series that I just mentioned, you know, it has the 19th century vibe in terms of the setting and the clothing and some of the attitudes. But she herself has very contemporary attitudes, which makes it uh, a lot of fun. And you really root for her. So highly recommend that. Again, that was Enola Holmes. The movie. Now, would you would you say those books is that considered to be fan fiction, like Sherlock Holmes fan fiction? Is that what you yeah, would call that? Yeah, I would think okay. it would be in that category because it is taking that world mm-hmm. and that character, those characters, I should say, with the other brother, and you know, making up a new story stories from that. It's high end fan fiction. <laughs> right. Well, I've never read like, I don't know if there was ever a sister in any of the Sherlock Holmes, like not in any of the shows I've ever watched, but I've never read any Sherlock Holmes. You know, I've read a bunch of the stories and I never I don't recall a sister. It's just the brother. Okay. As That's far really as I cool. remember, and I, I could be wrong. I mean, maybe there was a sister mentioned once upon a time. Well, and maybe it's that sort of thing where that, you know, there was like a, it was alluded to and our sister Enola at some point. And so this author just took that idea and ran with it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, so a lot cool. of fun. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any upcoming jaunts? So I do have an event coming up. It's through Simmons University. It's their Community Reads book, which is How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. There's going to be an event with him um, for this. So I look forward to to getting back into the book. It's a book I started and didn't finish. So I do look forward to picking it up again and getting back into it and then uh, attending the event. That's a good one, I think, to read and then go to an event because it I, it strikes me as a book you're going to read and want to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. so good for you. I have two events. I have a March 3rd event that was ticketed and I, I did have to buy a ticket, but it comes with a book and it's a joint event with Politics and Prose Bookstore down in D.C. and Harvard Bookstore in Boston and it's um, with Kazuo Ishiguro which, with his new book, which I'm very excited about. It's called Clara and the Sun. And he's in conversation with Dr. Kate Darling. Kazuo Ishiguro is a Nobel Prize winner. And I've read two of his books, Never Let Me Go and Remains of the Day. And I love both of them. This book, I think, is it has something to do with artificial intelligence. Like it's a robot that's in the window looking out or something. I mean, that's as much literally as much as I know about it. But this doctor that he's in conversation with runs like an artificial intelligence lab at MIT. 
<laughs> so it should be a really interesting conversation. March 3rd, like I said, they're going to let the first 250 people who sign up in. So I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's why I'm mentioning it kind of early on. And then I'm also signed up to do an event on March 10th, our buddies over at Savoy Bookshop and Cafe. It's an event with the Tapped Apple, which is, I don't know if you call it, do you call it a brewery? They make cider. I don't know if you call that a brewery or not, but they make hard cider. And the book is called, that they're doing this about is called American Cider. And it's a, a guide to this beverage, which is a, I'm not a drinker really at all. But when I do have a drink, often it's hard cider. I feel like it's really food friendly. And, you know, it has a, it's a really historic beverage in that people used to drink it instead of water back in the day, you know, because water wasn't always of the best quality. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even kids drank hard cider. So the authors are Dan Pucci and Craig Cavallo. And I'm really interested to learn more about the history of hard cider in this country. And again, that event is on March 10th at 7pm through Savoy Bookshop and Cafe. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, cool. I look forward to hearing about that. One of my favorite history books is called The Alcoholic Republic. And I don't remember the author offhand. I can bring that next episode. Um, but it is about the alcohol consumption in America and just how each generation drinks less alcohol than what Americans used to drink because water was not reliable, milk was not reliable, so alcohol was often the way to go. Oh, that sounds really interesting and an interesting companion read to this one, for sure. Possibly, yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. Possibly for sure. Listen to that. <laughs> Do you have any upcoming reads, Chris? You know, other than how to be anti-racist, no. Although my stack on my nightside table is growing and <laughs> to the lighthouse is calling to me. And I hope as I ease into school a little bit more, my personal reading will get back into a groove. Yeah, you'll get you'll get there. How about you? I'm going to start on audio Milk Fed by Melissa Broder through Libro.fm. Reminder that we are affiliates with Libro.fm. And actually, we just got some good news from them. They have become a social purpose company, very similar to a B Corps, where they, you know, social issues are more important to them than profit. And personally, an aside, I think that's yeah, the wave fantastic. of the future. So good, good for them. Yay, yay. And milk fed, I don't know a lot about it. I, I know that it's about appetites. That's the one word description I've, I've read. And then I also hope to read that book, Fair Play, that I was just talking about. And the full name of that book is Fair Play, a game changing solution for when you have too much to do and more life to live. Well, coming up next, we have our conversation with Carrie Arsenault, author of Milltown. We want to also thank everyone who attended our book discussion on Zoom um, last week. We had a really wonderful time talking with Carrie. This is our one-on-one uh, -on -one conversation or our two-on-one -on -one conversation, I guess I should say, um, with Carrie. So we hope you enjoy this interview. We're excited to have with us today Carrie Arsenault author of Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains. It's her first book just out from St. Martin's in 2020. 
It's a complicated narrative about complicated issues. It's part memoir, part family history, part environmental expose. Winding Throughout is an investigation into the high cancer rates of her hometown of Mexico, Maine. Carrie is also the book review editor at Orion Magazine and a contributing editor at LitHub. She and her husband have lived around the world. He recently retired from a 20 plus year career as an officer in the Coast Guard and they now live in Connecticut. Like Emily, who still subscribes to her hometown newspaper some states away, Carrie maintains a strong connection with her hometown where, much to Chris's delight, Carrie grew up riding a pink Huffy bike, perhaps like her own beloved pink BMX Huffy. Welcome, Carrie. <laughs> that was a great introduction. That pink Huffy was, it was funny. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that pink Huffy, my parents bought that and I was so upset about it. I was, such a, I was such a tomboy. And I was like, why did I get a pink Huffy? I was really mad. And so my grandfather actually painted it army green and he put on <laughs> and he painted on it the green hornet. Awesome. That's so cool. Right. Oh, man. That's so cool. I love that. Because I was a little bit like pink because I was a total tomboy too. And I kind of toughened mine up a little bit more and claimed pink as a tough color. Yeah, my parents didn't mean it. I mean, they never really brought me up to be any sort of girl boy thing. It was so it was a real surprise too. So I was I think they were just maybe that was what was available at the Obishan or whatever, whatever place they bought. I know I was like, I don't want to burst y'all's bubbles, but it was probably the bike that was on sale or something, you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because nobody wanted to buy a pan coffee. I can picture it right now in my mind, actually. Did they have banana seats? Oh no. That one didn't. It was that puffy squarish seat. Yeah. It tried to look like a motorcycle seat. Yep. Yep. So it was a little bit, it was badass pink, you know, that's okay. It was, it wasn't (laughs) light. It was like kind of Pepto-Bismol-y pink. (laughs) I found a picture of it and I'll post it on social media. Please do. Okay. Well, Carrie, we're so happy to have you here today. And I just loved the book and it it's a complicated book. When I first cracked the binding, I expected it to be a certain kind of book and it wasn't. Can you kind of let the listeners know how you describe it? Yeah. Um, there's so many ways, you know, you introduced it in a really perfect way about how it's a complicated thing and it's a mix of all those genres. I also think that it really kind of explains and examines our modern world and the contemporary conundrums that we have, like the rise and collapse of the working class and the American dream, which I think go hand in hand, the hazards of nostalgia and memory and the ambiguous nature of toxics and disease. And about that toxics and disease, well, we can talk about that later, but <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's talk about it now. Okay. I mean, that's one of the things that was really, you know, it's not it, it's not an uplifting book, but it's an important book to read. And so I don't want what we start to talk about to scare people off because I think you did a beautiful job of weaving your research and your family history and your obvious love of your family and your love of Mexico, Maine. So how did you set off to manage all of those things together in the writing of this book? Well, to think about there was no actual moment, right, that I realized uh, that this was a story. It, that's the thing about toxic disasters. They're, they're decentralized and really hard to pin down where they begin and where they end. You know, 
Uh, it's, it's like trying to connect cancer with toxics. It's just impossible. So that became sort of the mantra or, or the, the way I needed to tell Milltown too, in that it, there was not going to be a centralized plot per se, except for coming and going home. It was just a series of comings and goings and me leaving and coming and going. And I think that that, that idea about toxics just really drove the whole structure and the way I researched the book too, which, which is to say it was complicated and tangential and, you know, it really mimicked the idea. It really mimicked like a family tree, how it grows exponentially, you know, or the tributaries of a dirty river or, or how a cancer cell looks. It, the, the complications and the way it spread out, um, that's what happened. Yeah, the, the, like the chestnuts, the chestnut tree story in there and just how the roots, the, the tree may die, but the roots will eventually send up new shoots to grow. Um, and you have a quote from Robert Frost in there. God, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I know when we had our Zoom discussion mm-hmm. about the book with, with listeners, you know, you talked about how you didn't want it to have a happy ending because it's not a happy ending. What's happening with the toxins in our lives. But there is somewhat sense of hope that we do have roots that maybe can shoot up and, you know, bring up new growth. Yeah, I think that if I remember correctly, that part was about the solution to the problem is within the problem itself or something like that. Yeah, right. So meaning we are the problem, humans, and we are the solution, you know, really. I think that's where I was going with that, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and yeah, it's not that I didn't want to end on something hopeful, but I think if you do end on something that's, you know, ties it up in a bow and says, this is the end and everybody's going to, it gives people the illusion that everything is okay and everything is not okay. Right. Like that we can keep going yeah. and we're going to be okay. Um, as opposed to having a small sense of hope that this yeah. is a big ship to turn around, but we have to start turning it right, or else well, we're going to destroy ourselves. Right. I mean, it just, and, and I was talking to the Freeport Maine Conservation Society or Commission or something, I forgot the name, but talking about how really starting even that small, like even if you think about the root of that seedling or that sprout, really starting small, like maybe, you know, doing something in your town, just your town alone, and then seeing how that can spread throughout the town. And then maybe the community and the wider community in the state, you know, I think instead of starting way out here at a national level, it's just... <laughs> it's really hard right now. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of complicated things. So just like starting small, it's so basic. And it's, I mean, people have been doing that for decades, but I think we need to get back to that a little bit. Yeah. I'm not an expert on anything when it comes to the environment, but I have family that work, you know, and have been working for a long time to remediate climate change. And I think from when I talk to them and when I read this book, you know, it brings up this idea to me that the problem feels so big that sometimes the solution for ourselves as an individual is just to feel hopeless and say, well, I can't impact change. So, you know, I'm not going to do anything or, you know, I put my recyclables in the recycling and I'm doing the best I can. And that's that. And I think that what you do so well in the book is look at local politics and really get invested in what's happening in in Mexico, Maine, and trying to understand the history of how the paper mill 
worked because I don't even think we've talked about the paper mill yet. The basis right. of the yeah. story is that there's yeah. this paper mill in town, right? <laughs> That's very important to your family. So, so let's go to Mexico, Maine for a minute and talk a little bit about, you know, briefly what it was like for you to grow up there and the importance of this paper mill that you now discover as an adult is very problematic. Yeah, it opened in 1901, and I had um, three generations, four generations, including my sister, who worked there one summer, work in that paper mill. So it was not just integral to the economy of our town, but the owner, the, the builder of the mill, he built the roads, the libraries, the banks, the infrastructure, the canals, like he owned the river, basically, he owned everything. So we became very dependent, not just on the mill, but like upon his good grace, I should say. And then, you know, he gave it to his son and then he gave it to his son. So three generations of, you know, being sort of taken care of by this industrial paternalism gave us a sort of dependency on them and on the mill that's since been really hard to break. Yeah, I don't know what the second part of your question was. (laughs) just you know like what the mill meant to your family and then and and what that now that you've gone back as an adult and we go back to our hometowns as adults and see them very differently you know what what have you come to discover about the paper mill in Mexico Maine yeah we always called it Cancer Valley and we we always kind of joked about it but we I didn't really think too deeply about it because once something something like that, where there's a lot of cancer in your town, it just becomes white noise, I hate to say it. But we don't, I didn't bother to look into it. And not a lot of people did. Because one thing, it's white noise. And the second thing is, who has time? You know, it took me 10 years to write this book, probably more to research and to start even thinking about it. But who has the time if you're working nine to five and have five kids like my my parents <laughs> or, you know, my neighbors who had 13 kids and my best friend who had 15 kids, you know, who had who had time to think about that when their husbands or their wives were going to work in the mill. So really starting to think about it when I was older and my husband was in the Coast Guard and I had some time on my hands. I started researching my genealogy. And like you said at the beginning, the genealogy and the toxics Um, the toxic problems sort of started to run parallel. And I realized that, oh, these two things are crisscrossing each other all along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, you know, one of the things at the end of your book, you talk about how that river is, you know, flows out to the Atlantic and it's spreading and, you know, all industries, I think have their issues. You know, I have carpenter friends who've lost fingers and, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's just the business. And I'm going to go buy an automatic stop saw now that they have them, Um, you know, but I think when it's something like this, where, you know, it it is something that's poisoning people who are not involved in the mill. And at one point you talk about the toxins that build within the food chain. So with each level up on the food chain, it increases. And then here we are as humans being at the top of the food chain. So it is something that it does affect all of us, but it's so big that it is kind of like white noise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the harm. Yeah, that is the harm. And it, you know, I'm glad you pointed that out about that connection, how it accumulates in our DNA, because that's how, like I said at the beginning, that's how I started accumulating the evidence in this book too. It was like the same way. It was just collecting and collecting and collecting information from all these different places, like how boilers work, how papers made about toxics, about legal, about legislation and lawsuits and, you know, just collecting everything. 
it was overwhelming, just like it's overwhelming our DNAs, which is changing our molecular level, you know, which is why there's so much cancer. I mean, it's yeah. not just this toxic. It's think about it. This is one toxic, which is actually very small, small amounts that are going into they're very dangerous amounts, but they're small amounts. But, you know, nobody's studying what all these toxics together are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they legislate one toxic at a time. This is how much dioxin can be in your blood and this is how much you know right yeah i mean down to like tampons and pads you know another thing i heard too is like scents that they put in dryer sheets and things like that that's never even been investigated in terms of the health impact that those things can have no and i just recently found out that bread that bread flour or flour has a chlorine so i should say to everybody the the problem with bleaching paper white is it has uses chlorinated compounds let's just maybe that's the wrong technical term, but it uses chlorine-based agent to bleach things. And that creates a dangerous byproducts, right? I just read that flour, you know, uses a chlorinated-based bleaching agent. So what does that mean? I don't even know. I'm just saying chlorine is a Pandora's box. Everything that, you know, there's a time and a place. We need bleach for certain things, but like to put it in the atmosphere like we're doing is seems pretty unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Now, could I change the conversation yes. in a completely different direction? I'm actually in library school studying to become an archivist, and we have a lot of librarians who are listeners. I really enjoyed the parts where you, you know, you mentioned going into all these archives and doing all this research and how some are organized and some are not. And uh, could you talk a little bit about your experience in the archives doing this research? That is such a great question and nobody has to ask that, but I think it's really important. Library, well, I went to the EPA for one and all the records there, it seemed like somebody just like stacked them on their desk and then they brought them down to the archives and they were like, here, can you file this? And then those people weren't responsible for organizing it. They'd be like, here's this box and then they'd put it away. So when people make FOIA you know, requests, now I understand why it's so hard for them to find records and it's not anybody's fault in particular, it's just the way it's done. So that creates like a problem immediately if you wanna try to find information, right? And then there's the historical archives. Again, lovely people at our town hall. I, I know them all personally, but when the archives are basically populated by you know the paper mill in our case and everything in there was very laudatory of the mill owner and the mill, like, is that a realistic res- representation of the history of the town? You know, it was really hard for me to find anything that sort of did anything but laud the owner of the mill. So those kind of problems and, and libraries too, probably, you know, you who's digging out the information, who's filing the information. It's all a very powerful position that you're in, really. And, and I don't think people think about that. You know, if you had a political agenda, you could certainly decide what to keep on your shelves and what not to keep on your shelves or what to order. And there's so there's so much that goes into that. Absolutely. Yeah, for and sure. Who gets to tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. That's the end. That's the end question, right? Who gets yeah. to tell us? It's librarians. No. <laughs> <laughs> you better have well, my book on your shelf now. <laughs> but it is true. You know, there's um, that whole, you know, objectivity and there, there are, you know, staffing issues and space issues. Yeah. But I do think a lot of, you know, the historical record is based on who funded what and knowing where your bread and butter came from 
uh, a lot of the time. And I think some of the juicier information is often found in letters and diaries and things. Yes. But again, that takes a lot of work for someone to read through and try and index. Especially when some small town libraries still are using like microfiche, you know, right. Yeah. Jars was, and I was like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> you know, I have a deadline here. Um, I should say that su subsequent, I, I won this grant with a former main, a former Rumford resident too, Aaron Kayer, who teaches at the University of New Mexico architect. And we won a grant from the Architect League of New York and part of that project, which was just published a week ago, and we're going to do a talk on it soon, was I took all the memorials, including the town hall, and I reimagined them. So I did what, I took it out of the hands of the archivist, and I said, this is what we should have. Like, for instance, we have a big Paul Bunyan in our town. He's like the epitome of like whacking down the forest, right, and like ruining nature. But we laud him. We have this, I mean, he's a huge, he's like a house-sized statue. And then we also, across the river, we have Ed Muskie's memorial. Ed Muskie, who penned the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, was from our town. Wow. So I looked at those two memorials and I thought, well, Muskie's looks like, it was like a granite stone. It looked like a grave, basically. So I thought, what if, and Muskie's father was a tailor. What if we like made some clothes that dressed Paul Bunyan to look like Muskie? <laughs> And like made him the giant of the town. And he was actually a giant. He was tall. He was like super tall. Like he would fill a room, musky. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. It was a project. Fun. Yeah. It was kind of fun. It's a little wacky. Imagining history. Yeah. 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 But I well, want to do it too. Yeah. <laughs> those those uh big Paul Bunyan muffler man things. I a couple streets away from where I grew up that held the hot dog. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, your next do. study is to go find all the Paul Bunyan statues in the United States. It would be really fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah. see what they're totally. holding. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that one, I grew up in a town called Cicero, Illinois. And that statue from my neighborhood has since been moved to a town called Atlanta, Illinois. Huh. Um, so they, they do make their way around. They do. <laughs> ours is, I should tell everybody, ours is holding a big axe. And it's, I think it's on my Twitter page right at the head. The, the top of my Twitter. Carrie, when I when I was reading the book in the middle, I Chris hadn't started it yet. And I said to to Chris, I wonder how Carrie's gonna reckon with the impact that this mill had on her family and, and her father, because you know, there the memoir part of your book is really, you know, it's really thoughtful and it really you really take the reader along with your experience with your father and, and his getting ill and his acceptance or not acceptance of his illness. And Chris kind of jokingly said to me, well, you know, that is what the title says. It says reckoning with what remains. So she's probably going to get there. But then when I finished the book, I thought, you know, I guess that wasn't really the question I was asking. I was asking myself and it's semantics, but how is she going to reconcile what she discovered and what she found? I mean, it, yeah. it's kind of funny, like the subtitle that actually that the subtitle was originally the title, What Remains was the original title for like 12 years. <laughs> and then we changed it at the last minute. But yeah, that that is the reckoning. And, and, you know, to and my father, I should say, died in the middle of me writing this. It wasn't like he died and then I decided to write the book, but he died literally well in the middle of it. So, you know, his death was just among many in the book, too. Mm -hmm. of of people and of my family and um yeah I think writing the book was it yeah 
It's brought a lot of people to me and to talk about this issue a lot more openly, including everybody in our town. That's interesting. So, you know, one of the things that you talked about in our Zoom discussion is that paying attention to your local politics is really important. And that's something that you really show in this book. And I encourage people to read it and to think about it. It isn't necessarily about being hopeful, but it's about what can you do and how can you look at your own town, your own life and help to impact change, which I think we all are responsible for. Yeah. And I think it's part of is even just going to the town meetings you know, if you're not an activist, just go to the town meetings and pay attention to what's going on or, or support a candidate that is paying attention to what's going on. It doesn't have to be, I think people kind of, some people aren't in the activist mode. I'm not an activist like that. I'm not interested in that. I'm like, I'm going to write and I'm going to maybe go to some meetings, but I'm going to vote for people too. So it's like, everybody can do their own sort of way about doing it, your own sense of involvement. Right. Yeah. And there's so many different ways to to educate and teach. And this book is educating people. You know, last night I rewatched a Ted talk by Chimamanda Adichie, Mm -hmm. the danger of a single story. And, you know, she talks about how, when she first came from Nigeria to America for college, how shocked she was about the single story people here have of Africa, Mm. you know, as if Africa's one big country, Um, But one thing she talks about is how you tell a story or who tells the story and what you start a story with. And she says, you know, like in the case of American history, you can start with Native Americans shooting arrows, or you can start with the white colonizers invading the country. Mm. And it made me really think about your book and how, you know, like you just said, for, for such a long time, it was all about the mill and all these great things the mill did and all the wonderful things the owners of the mill did. And now you know, you're telling this story from a different starting point. Yeah, I mean, a couple different ones. I think the narrative of the working class Mm -hmm. um, has been left out of a lot of literature, especially from the working class voice. I also, Acadians, you know, I don't, I can't think of any books like this that are telling the Acadian story, except in sort of his more historically, Um, or the, not that, maybe even left out, but distorted. Like the Acadian story has been distorted by, you know, Longfellow's poem, Evangeline or Anne of Green Gables, Prince Edward Island. Prince Edward Island is way more complicated than Anne of Green Gables as I write about in the book. So those narratives have been distorted or not told. And like growing up, I I never knew the story about Acadians or French Canadians, even though most of our town was composed of these people. Mm -hmm. So, So yeah, I think telling those stories from the point of view of the people that it's about is necessary. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I think one of the great things is that, you know, people who read this book can start thinking about their own town, their own city in in different ways, and maybe approaching the story of it from different angles to see what new information they come up with or uncover. I like that. I like that idea. So Carrie, We have one last burning question for you. Uh I've been wanting to ask this question since page seven of your book. (laughs) No, no, this is a speaking of Acadian history and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but I have to know I'm a food person. What are Cretans? Cretans? Oh my God. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, (laughs) I just made them for the first time last week. It's a, Oh, wow. 
Yeah, I, I we always had it. So it's a basically it's a pork pate. We used to buy it. My mother always bought it in uh, this place in Lewiston, Maine that that made it. And I had never made it. Long story short, I'm writing an essay about it um, that's going into an anthology that's going to help feed hungry kids in Maine, a food anthology of Maine writers. But it's pork and onions and interestingly enough, allspice hmm. and uh, a little bit of breadcrumbs. What else? That's about it. And it's really soft and mashed. And, it, and I'm trying to find the information or the history of it. And I can't really find anything um, about why those spices in particular or when it came into, because it, it's kind of based on the roulettes and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong too, of France, which is like a pork pate, but they use like bay and thyme. So mm -hmm. somewhere along the way, the spices got switched. I'll make you some. Oh, yum. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> if you're a meat oh, eater. Oh, finally. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. because you you ate them for breakfast, right? Oh, Isn't definitely. Right? You, you put on bread a little yeah. You can either put mustard, like French's yellow mustard is, or butter, and then just like toasted bread, and then, yeah, spread it on. It's delicious. Nice. Oh, sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you for the writing the book for your discoveries, sharing it with us. I also really appreciate that you gave us a lot to think about and didn't just give answers because the answers are not there. They're to be, yet to be discovered, right? Yes. And um, I think that was a brilliant way of handling the book. Thank you for sharing your experience with your father and your grief with us because that's not a simple thing to do with the written word. And thank you for your time. Thank, thank you both for having me twice. I know. Thank you so much for coming with us twice. It's been such a fun, you know, way to get to know you and to dig into your book a little bit deeper. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I can't wait to yeah. see you guys in person again someday. I will bring Creton. Right. All right. On. I'm there. We will hold you to that. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks for listening to the book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.